So, we're into the book of Ruth and chapter 3. Um, how many of you were here for chapters, either chapters 1 or 2? Good stuff. Okay. Um, I don't have any PowerPoints for you this morning other than this beautiful picture here. So I'm just going to leave that up for you. So you're going to have to listen quite carefully, and you might even want to write notes in case anything I say is worthwhile or interesting, and you might want to remember it. Um, I do have a video I'm going to show you in a few minutes. Uh, we are going to, but if you've got a Bible, I'd love you to turn up Ruth and chapter 3. Uh, it's a short book in the Old Testament, nearer to, as Brian said last week, nearer to the beginning of the Old Testament than you think. And um, just to uh, recap uh, over the last couple of weeks, um, the story so far. So two weeks ago, Johnny and Beth shared from chapter 1. And chapter 1 introduces the story of Ruth, actually it introduces the story of Naomi and her husband Elimelech, who moved from the land of Israel, from the town of Bethlehem, where, where, which was their sort of family home. And they, in, in a time of, uh, we don't really know why this happened, we don't really know anything about why, but in a time of famine, they decided to move away from God's sort of chosen land of Israel and move over into Moab, a different country. Um, and they were there, and they had two sons there, and unfortunately, both Elimelech, the husband, and the two sons died, leaving Naomi, a widow, with two daughters-in-law, Ruth and Orpah. And Naomi was obviously in a difficult situation and made the decision to move back, to make the long journey back to her hometown in Bethlehem. And uh, she sort of freed up her two daughters-in-law and said, go back to your tribes, because remember, they weren't Israelis, they weren't um, Hebrews like, Ruth, uh, like uh, Naomi was. Uh, she said, go, go, back, go back and make another start in your, in your land. And Orpah did go back, but Ruth said, no, no, no. Wherever you go, I will go. And your God will be my God. And Ruth decided she was going to stay with her mother-in-law and make the journey back. And so they came back to Bethlehem where Naomi saw members of her family. And actually, if you remember, she said, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, because Mara means bitter. It means bitter. God has done me a great disservice is what she said. God has brought misfortune on me. I, and it's really interesting, the wording here. We'll note this for a bit later. She says, I went away full and came back empty. And that was chapter one. And then last week in chapter two, Brian did an amazing job of just helping us kind of work through chapter two. And we read that Ruth um, steps out into the fields to glean, which is to gather up the sort of bits and bobs of crops that are left at the edge of the field. Specifically, it's a system that they devised, or that God devised, for the poor. And so she ends up sort of going to this field and starting to gather in just some of the few spare bits and bobs of grain that are there. And she t- it turns out that this field is owned by Boaz. And it turns out that this is, um, as Brian reminded us last week, a divine encounter, a God encounter. And Boaz is incredibly kind to her. And he actually tells the men in the field, um, don't harass her, leave her alone. In fact... Leave out, deliberately leave out more grain for her. She's an amazing woman. I've heard about it. The whole village knows what this girl did. She could have stayed with her people, but she chose to come back with her mother-in-law. She's an honourable and worthy woman. We've heard about him. He he makes a big note. She says to him, why do you take notice of me? This is chapter 2, verse 10, in case you're interested. Why do you take notice of me, Ruth says? I'm a foreigner. And he says, I know what you did for your mother-in-law. I know what you did. And so Ruth gets home at the end of the day with all this grain. And she says to Naomi, you know, this is what happened. And Naomi says, oh, him, Boaz, he's one of our relatives. He is one of our kinsman redeemers. And again, Brian explained last week, a kinsman redeemer is a male relative who has the privilege or the responsibility to help a widow. 
somebody who's in Naomi's situation. Because don't forget, culturally, things are very different back then. And to have no husband and to have no surviving heirs who are sons, okay, is, is pretty, pretty much the end of your life culturally. And yes, God did devise a system to look after widows and orphans, um, but uh, there is no way that Naomi's sort of honor and dignity and her family line is going to continue unless somebody comes, a kinsman redeemer comes, a relative who can come and rescue the situation. We'll talk more about how that works in a few minutes. And so despite Naomi feeling that God had left her, had let her down, it turns out, as Brian shared with us last week, that God has a plan for her all along. He had a plan for her which involved someone called a redeemer getting involved and something happening to bring transformation in her life. God turned everything around for Naomi and Ruth. We haven't quite got to chapter four yet, but it's on the way. And the truth is he can do that for us too. And as Brian reminded us, if we feel rejected, if we feel on the edge of things, if we feel like we've been forgotten, God has not forgotten. God does not reject. God loves us and he has a plan for us. And so that's a kind of brief summary of chapter one and two. And I'd like you to watch this video, which um, I found on YouTube. This is a, a spoof movie trailer made by some young people in, uh, in Texas um, for a, a movie of the story of Ruth. This is just, it just kind of summarizes where we've got to. But to be honest, it puts it in a slightly more dramatic uh, kind of, kind of um, version. So have a look at this. It's the story of Ruth. It was years ago when the famine first struck Israel. Our crops failed. We were growing desperate. I had no sons, no husband, and no hope. Nothing will ever be like it used to be. I will go where you go and live where you live. I knew it was time to go home. Israel. Good morning. Lord bless you, friends. Lord bless you, Tell your men that that girl Ruth is not to be stopped from picking up all the grain that she needs. God bless the man who is so generous to you. Yes, he was very kind. His name is Boaz. Our God is a great giver, and his people are kind. You're kind to make me feel so welcome here. Well, uh, I guess I'll let you return to your work. I'll need my hand back. Oh. Wonderful, isn't it? Uh, I get that it's a bit cheesy and American, but, uh, but, but that's, a, that's a reading of the story I can relate to. 
Actually, if you want a more English version, um, I found on the internet that if you were... How many of you know uh, the book Sense and Sensibility by Jane Austen? You know, um, there are 10 similarities between the story of Ruth and the story of Sense and Sensibility. I found them on the internet. Um, I won't read them to you now. Uh, all, I, all I have to say is that um, as a child, and with apologies to any English literature students, I had an awful English literature teacher who completely ruined Jane Austen for me. Uh, you know, we read Pride and Prejudice, and it was just awful. I just couldn't get my head around it at all. Ten years later, I'm watching the six-part BBC epic, thinking, how did I miss this? How did my, how did my teacher make this story so dull? It's fantastic. And I sort of, sort of began to enter into a little bit of the world of Jane Austen and stories. This is just like that. This is a fantastic story. And um, Ellie, now we've caught up, Ellie is going to come and read to us uh, chapter 3. So if you've got your Bible, do follow. We're just going to read right through chapter 3. There's about uh, 14, 18 verses or so. Go for it. Is that on? Let me check. It is on. Go for it. One day, Naomi, her her mother-in-law, said to Ruth, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you will be well provided for? Is not Boaz, with whose servant girls you have been, a kinsman of ours? Tonight he'll be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he's lying, and then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man and he turned and discovered a young woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a kinsman redeemer the lord bless you my daughter he replied this kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier you have not run after the younger man whether rich or poor and now my daughter don't be afraid i will do for you what you ask all my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character although it is true that i am near of kin there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than i Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to redeem, then good, let him redeem. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized, and he said, Don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, Bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and put it on her, and then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? And then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley, saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. And then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Thank you, Ellie. And if they were watching that on BBC One, you know what would happen next? It would be... It's one of those moments, isn't it? I don't watch EastEnders, but, you know... I, I know enough to know that's what happens at the end of uh, 
at the end of the next exciting episode. It's a fairly straightforward plot. I want to make some comments on what happened, and then I want us to push into two specific areas that I think we can learn as we reflect on this story. Um, with, with the, uh, with the uh, proviso that chapter four is coming next week. Okay? Um, this is a fairly straightforward plot that going, going on here in chapter three. Ruth and Boaz, it's their second meeting or their second encounter. The first one was in the field by day. This one's very different. In fact, Naomi has basically um, sent Ruth, she's hatched a plan to send Ruth to effectively get moving on this whole kinsman redeemer business. You know, she says, I think what you need to do is you need to go to him. He is our kinsman redeemer. He's one of the people, one of the relatives that can help us out. And you need to go to him and you need to propose marriage to him. Now, she's taking the role of a parent here because that's what, in that culture, that's what a parent would do. They would start to arrange uh, marriages. And so she says, she tells what we ought to do and Ruth dresses herself up and she anoints herself as if, basically as if she were a bride and she, she wouldn't be recognisable. She would have a headdress on that would mean she wouldn't be recognisable. And she goes and she lies down at his feet. She uncovers his feet, as she's told to, and she just lies there and waits to see what happens. Now, I don't know if, you know, it gets cold and by midnight, you know, his feet are cold and he wakes up. I don't know. There's quite a lot of discussion by scholars about this little bit of the passage. Some people suggest that, 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 there's, that this is a euphemism and there's something more sexual going on here. Um, but, but it's very unlikely, and most of the scholars don't think so. Um, in fact, to be honest, they're not quite sure what's going on, but they know it's something different and unusual and out of the ordinary. And so um, it's, it's quite unusual that a woman would propose to a man in this culture. It's not completely unheard of because he is a relative, but it certainly makes you sit up and take notice. So what's she actually asking? Well, she's asking him to marry her, why would he do that? Well, for two reasons. One, to continue her dead father-in-law's line. Because your lineage and, your, and, and what you, how the inheritance works down the line is really important in this culture. And so because Elimelech and therefore Naomi have no heirs, she's basically saying, I want you to come and marry me and we will have a son and he will become an heir where there is no heir at the minute. So that's one thing that she's asking him. And she's also at the same time saying, and I want you to enact on the fact that you're a kinsman redeemer and I want you to buy Naomi's property so that it stays in the family and doesn't get sold to somebody else. So it's land and it's line. Okay? And um, throughout this story, Ruth's motives for doing this are basically very, very selfless. She's not doing this because she loves him at this point. It doesn't say that in the story. She's doing it because it's the right thing to do for her mother-in-law. Throughout this story, Ruth is portrayed as someone who's incredibly kind and incredibly honorable and incredibly humble. But she's doing this for the survival of her family or her mother-in-law's family. And Boaz can see that. It's obvious what her motives are. And he blesses her because of it. We read in chapter 10, he says... The Lord bless you, my daughter. Your, this kindness is greater even than the first kindness that you showed me earlier. All the people of my town know that you're a worthy character. That's what he says. Everyone can see that you're a woman of noble character. Wouldn't, wouldn't you love to have that said about you if you were a lady? 
everyone can see that you're a woman of noble character. And what's Boaz's response? Well, he's blessed and he's flattered. And, uh, you know, we don't know. It's, 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 again, we don't know whether he had other wives. They're not alluded to in the story. It wouldn't be unheard of. But there is a sense that he's kind of perhaps an older bachelor. I, I'm, I, you can't say that for definite. You can't say that for sure. There's just not enough information there. But he does sort of hint at it when he says, do you know what? You've come after me. You haven't run after the younger men that you might have run after. So there is this sense of him being, being like that. And, and legally, he's actually not obliged to, to, to say yes to her. He doesn't have to do this. It's not in the law because there, it turns out there is another relative who is closer, who is legally, more legally obliged to certainly enact the land part of that redemption thing. So he's not obliged, but you can see that his response is a, a response of love and kindness. And basically he says, yes. Yes, I will do everything you ask. But just a minute, before I do that, there's something we need to sort out. Because there's actually another closer relative, and he has first say on the land. But don't worry, because if he says no, I will look after you. Don't you love that? I love what she says, by the way, when, she, um, when she's there lying down. She says, spread the corner of your garment over me. The, the ESV translation says, spread your wings over your servant. I love that. This kind of reminds us of the Psalms. So she's saying, I need you to come and spread your wings over me, and not just me, but my whole family, my adopted family. And he says, yes, I will do that. I will make sure that you are protected, that your honor and your dignity stands. And then in the morning, his next thing is that he says, okay, and you need to stay here all night because you can't leave now because it's dangerous. And in the morning, you need to get up early and we don't need people to see that you were here because otherwise that could be misconstrued as something else. So again, he's protecting her honor. And then even even more than that, he sends her back. And by the way, don't go back empty-handed. Remember what I said from chapter one? Naomi said in chapter one, she said, I went away full and the Lord has made me come back empty. And Ruth went away empty, and she comes back full. And it's just a little symbol of what God is doing. Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. And the chapter stops there, right on a cliffhanger. I love that. Nicely set up for next week. Um, Let's reflect on two key issues, two separate and important things that I think we can see in this chapter that I think we could learn from as we consider what goes on here. By the way, I'm not looking forward to next week. There's a whole bunch of stuff we can reflect on for next week, uh, which kind of summarizes the whole story. And Brian mentioned it last week as well, you know, this whole kinsman redeemer thing and how it's just a, a prophetic foreshadowing of what Jesus is going to do for his people and how God wants to redeem all of us. I don't want to talk about that now. I'm going to talk about that next week. But <clears throat> what I do want to talk about are two things. And the first is sexual purity, kindness, and honor in relationships, because that's what I see going on here. You see, this situation is really interesting, and as I already alluded to, some scholars have read it and said, is that really what's going on there? Surely it's more seedy than that. And it could have turned out very differently as well, if it wasn't for the character of both Ruth and Boaz. She's there on the instruction of her mother-in-law. You know, she's selfless, clearly selfless and kind, and therefore for really good and worthy reasons. Uh, 
as I already commented, she, she could have gone after younger men. She was an eligible wife. She was, you know, she could have had children and she could have gone after somebody else, but she chose not to. Now, marriage customs were very different back then. So you can't apply this stuff literally now, but to my mind, she demonstrates some really wonderful character comments, character, character traits, character qualities. As I said, she's known as a worthy woman, a woman of noble character. If you look up in Proverbs chapter 31, there's a whole chapter that describes what a woman of noble character is, as far as God's concerned. And Boaz is saying, you see that? That's you. That's you. Everyone can see that. And similarly, Boaz, he's an, clearly an honorable, decent, and godly man. Yes, he's been eating and drinking, not necessarily to excess, but he's quite happy. He wakes up and he finds a girl in his bed. I'm sorry, but that's dramatic. You know? The potential for him to then take advantage of her is pretty enormous. I mean, he's a wealthy man. He's a landowner. Everyone respects him. He's got people who work for him. I would imagine that people wouldn't bat an eyelid. Some of the people in that culture wouldn't bat an eyelid, and yet he doesn't. He, to he totally does the right thing. And for me, that stands out, because I'm sure it wasn't that common then, and it certainly isn't common now. Both of them seem to display this incredible dignity and kindness and grace towards one another in the way that they treat one another. Which, and I, I, I think that's part of what keeps them right in the will of God. They're so gracious to one another. And it's such a contrast to much of what we see in our society, isn't it? I mean, isn't it? You know, Boaz actually had to tell his workers in chapter 2, see that girl there? Don't touch her. Leave her alone. Don't harass her. Even then, this kind of behavior stood out. What stands out to me is the way that they both treat one another. It feels like a really big deal. Both are honoring God and his guidelines on sexual purity, which how we treat one another really counts. As a, sing, as a single guy, when I was younger, I was really, really aware of just what happened in my brain whenever I saw a girl who was even a little bit attractive. Now, I can't talk to you women about this. Well, I can, but I don't relate to where you're at. But you guys, you all know what I'm talking about, okay? You know, I would start asking the question, is she the one for me? Is she a potential marriage partner? Is she a potential sexual partner? That's what happens. The Bible has guidelines on how we deal with this stuff, how we treat one another, how we live out sexual purity and holiness, especially in our society where the, the Bible standards on sexual purity are just kind of so far away from society's norm. You know, our kids come home from school, and if you've got small kids or even older kids, you'll know this, and they give us the whole running commentary of who is going out with who in the playground or in the classroom. Oh, such and such is going out with this girl now. Oh, such, uh, just nod if you relate to this, you know? Okay, so let's just go, oh no, he's not going out with her, now he's going out with this one now. Oh, these two are out together. Oh, and we have these kind of slightly, um, we, we should sort of step back from the conversation and say, what, what does that mean, going out? What, what does that mean? You know, we have this conversation and it just seems a bit ludicrous at their age. 
And yet, actually, I think they're just mirroring much of what they see in adult society. Maybe if not among their own community, then certainly in the culture at large. You know, I read these statistics in 2013. A survey said that the average number of sexual partners a man has is 11 in his life, and the average number a woman has is seven in their life. In 2014, the organization Relate reported that 31% of men and 21% of women had slept with more than 10 people in their lifetimes. These are pretty heavy figures. And even if they are exaggerated, because to tell you the truth, people don't always answer these surveys to honesty. Even if that's true, then they still show a deep-seated problem to me about how men and women can relate healthily. Was it When Harry Met Sally? You remember that film? Men and women can... The whole premise of that film, which I thought was a pretty good film, by the way, but the whole premise of that film was men and women can't really be friends without the sex part getting in the way. And okay, it's, a, it's dressed up as a romantic comedy, and it's a good movie, but... But there is an issue here, isn't there? And by the way, I'm not saying this today to make anybody feel guilty. So please don't. There's no judgment here. Jesus doesn't judge. Jesus redeems every situation and can transform even the most broken and hurt situations. So I'm not here to pour judgment on somebody who already feels like they've messed up today. That isn't, that isn't what it's about at all. You know? God's grace is here. His spirit is here. For anyone who's trying to follow Jesus and live as a Christian, though, these are big deals. These are challenging issues. And as a single young Christian guy, for me, this was an issue I thought about a lot. When most of the people around you are engaged in either speaking about members of the opposite sex inappropriately or actually in flirting with members of the opposite sex inappropriately, or actually taking it further and engaging sexually with members of the opposite sex, that's a really difficult thing to live out. It's all gone very quiet. Just nod if you can relate to what I'm saying. Okay, good. I'm not trying to get heavy, but I just think this is what's there and we need to talk about it. Most of those people who were doing that, in my, in my story anyway, the people around me, were doing it out of some kind of insecurity. Just trying to find out who they were trying to feel better about themselves and being a christian in that environment is a challenge upholding god's standards and standing out as being different in that environment is a challenge by the way as you get older it doesn't necessarily get easier and those of you who are married will know that it doesn't necessarily get that much easier being married i have a friend she's a single girl or was a single girl who got married in her late uh, early 40s within the last two or three years you know all her friends were coupling off marrying and having kids all through her 20s and her 30s. It was really tough for her to watch that and to genuinely be part of their lives and celebrate and share what was going on without at times feeling a little bit on the edge and a little bit left out and a little bit lost and a little bit lonely. And that is the time when her relationship with God was able to come strong and sustain her in this situation and cover her that is when she was able to effectively say to God, cover me with your wings, because that's what he does. That's when God brought different people into her life to support and encourage her and be community with her, and we can be that for one another. We can and we should. So even just now, ask God, just right now, is there anybody that I can include today? 
in my family or my friendship group, in my community or my small group life? Is there anybody that I can include so that I can be community for someone who might be struggling with these kinds of issues? I remember having a conversation with her about marriage and the possibility of marrying someone and what if you marry this guy and how do you know if he's the right guy? And she, I remember being so respectful of what she told me, which is, I don't want to marry the wrong guy. Why would I want to marry somebody who isn't the right guy for me? I'm not just going to marry someone just because I'm desperate or lonely. That's a hard thing to say. And it wasn't always easy. We have another much older single relative who's never been married and one time said to us, you know, I saw all my friends marrying the wrong people and being really unhappy. And I thought I would rather be single and happy than married and unhappy. It's a tricky thing. And for some of us, this is a really live issue that we're walking with right now. For a number of different reasons. And if that's you, you have my utmost respect. My utmost respect. And I just want to remind you, and God wants to remind you and reassure you that he is all that we will ever need. Now that's easy to say, and it's not necessarily easy to live out, but it is the truth that he's all we'll ever need, that he can put people around us, that he is our protection, that he puts the lonely in families, that he is the redeemer and he has the resources we need. I can't promise you that by pressing into God in the midst of a difficult single situation, he's suddenly going to turn around and it's just going to happen like that. The marriage thing, I mean. I can't promise that. But I do know that you'll be in the most fulfilled place you can be because you'll be in the arms of God. And actually that applies to all of us who are married. Don't think that just because you're married you don't get away from this thing. We need to be in God's arms first and foremost. We need to be resting in his arms first and foremost. And not even going there in terms of getting involved with people or getting anywhere close to sexual temptation. And that's a challenge. It's a challenge that all of us have to live out. And I'm aware that we could say a lot more about that. I haven't really got time to say any more about that, but if you have questions, I'd love to talk some more. You know, he can cover his, his wings, can cover and protect all of us. And there's just something to learn from Ruth and Boaz's example here in the way that they so respectfully treated one another. It reminds me of something that I was kind of taught as a, as a young guy in my 20s. Somebody in church, I don't remember where I learned it from, they said to me, what you need to do if you're a young guy, single guy, is to treat every girl as if she was your sister or the future wife of your best friend. That's how you need to think of every member of the opposite sex that you meet. They're the future wife or husband of my best friend, so I don't want to be thinking things about them or entertaining thoughts down that line that I would be you know, ashamed of or embarrassed later. Now, that's a guideline and truthfully, we all mess up in this stuff. But there is grace. We're going to have communion in about five, ten minutes. And I would love in it. And if you need to bring something to God, then today's a really good day. There is grace, there is forgiveness, and there is peace. Are we, are we communicating? Is that all right? I just want to talk about one other aspect that I see in this story. As well as the whole um, sexual purity, kindness, and honoring of one another. The other thing that I see in this story is the proactive partnership with the Spirit of God. Let me explain what I mean by that. You see, although this story is called the book of Ruth, actually the central character isn't Ruth or Boaz, it's Naomi. Okay, They do play their part, obviously, 
Naomi is there at the start of the story. She's the central figure and uh, in chapter one, and she's right there at the end as well. It's Naomi who goes on the biggest emotional and spiritual journey in the story of Ruth. It's Naomi who has the greatest character arc, or greatest transformation. She goes from being a bitter outsider who thinks that God has done her a great disservice and forgotten all about her, to being the one who is redeemed and blessed in an ex- by an extraordinary and generous way by an amazing God. As I said, this isn't a spoiler alert. We'll find out more next week. Actually, you could argue that Naomi, or rather her husband, deliberately decided to take her family out of the provision of God's blessing by moving away from Israel. You could argue that. I wouldn't want to argue it too strongly or heavily, but you could say that. They decided that because there was famine, they weren't able, for whatever reason, to trust God to look after them, and they'd go somewhere else to look for food, and yet God has promised provision for his people. So actually, Naomi's husband made a decision to walk, if you like, to walk away from God in a sense. Isn't that interesting? And as Brian so beautifully put it last week, even though that may have been true, God did not forget her and he had a plan to help her and provide for her, the same as he wants to do for us. And what I want to draw attention to here is that that plan would not have come about if it hadn't been for some of the proactive steps that Naomi and then Ruth took. She didn't sit in Moab moaning and waiting and wondering when God was going to come and rescue her. She decided to get up and walk back to her hometown. She decided to make a journey, a difficult journey, a painful journey, a humiliating journey, but no less a journey. She took a step. She swallowed her pride. Despite feeling bitter and rejected by God, she went to a place where she knew she would find at least some help and where God might be able to help her. Is that you, I wonder? I remember um, it was November 1991, and I was pretty cheesed off with my life, and I was pretty cheesed off with God. And my sister was going to a new church called the Vineyard Church in Birmingham. And she said, you should come, you should come, you'll really enjoy it. And I'd heard all about the Vineyard, but I was a little bit too proud to go and follow my sister in. You know, usually she followed me places. (laughs) But but actually, I remember this one night, I was just thinking, I knew they were meeting. I dropped her, I'd even dropped her off at this meeting in a hotel room. And I I was going somewhere else. It wasn't really working out. I was pretty cheesed off. And I just thought, "I've I've just got to go there. I didn't know what would happen. But I probably wouldn't be here now if I hadn't have done that. I just knew that there was something there that I needed to get in touch with. And I needed to go and swallow my pride and make a journey. And then once that Naomi is back and she's discovered that Ruth has met Boaz and he's been so kind, she starts to hatch a plan. He's one of our kinsmen redeemers, she says. And here we see in chapter three her start to act on this plan. Off you go, Ruth. Take this bold step. Go and propose to this man. It's a risky thing to do. That's a risky thing to do. What do we learn from this? Yes, God is a God of passion and miracles. We know that to be true. He's a God of provision and passion and miracles. Yes, he wants to extend his kingdom and bless his people. Yes, he's a good, good father who wants to give good gifts. Yes, he longs to reach out and touch people. He wants transformation. Yes, he wants to renew and revive and reform and restore his people and his world. But he does need us to partner with him in this process. We do need to do something ourselves. Alan Scott tweeted this. He said, God doesn't want it to be all of him and none of you. He had that before he created you. He wants all of him in all of you. 
we have a part to play in the purposes of God. And as we step out in boldness and we are prepared to look stupid and be vulnerable, then we see the spirit of God at work, don't we? How many of you know this to be true? Yeah, exactly. Come on. You know, you know what I'm talking about. You could get more excited about it if you wanted. Um, that's what happened here when Ruth stepped out. That's what happens in our lives. That's what's happening all the time. Yesterday, the Healing on the Streets team were out in the city centre. They put chairs out. They put a banner up. They said, come here if you want to be healed. We will pray for you. If they hadn't have done that, people wouldn't have been prayed for and wouldn't have been healed. You have to take a proactive step if you want to see what God is doing. Often. Mostly. Tent on the green a few weeks ago and some of our young people went out with their treasure hunting cards and they saw the clues, they, they, they listened to God and they went and they asked people and they engaged with people and only when they started to engage with people and say, are you the treasure that we've been hunting? Only then did they get the opportunity to bless and pray for people and see God do stuff. You see, the spirit moves, but he moves with us. You know, Je- Jenny told that amazing story a couple of weeks ago about how she went to the hospital and prayed for Jolene and Jolene was pretty much miraculously healed having been told by the doctor she was at death's door. It only happened because Jenny went and did something. And there are loads more stories, but I don't have time to tell you them. The takeaway from this story is, if you are wanting or needing God to move in your situation in a proactive way, it needs us to do something about that. I often meet people who are just waiting for God, waiting for God to speak, waiting for God to do something, waiting for God to tell them what to do next in their future. And so I say, so what are you interested in? What what, What are you passionate about? And they start to light up. And they start to tell me these dreams that they've got. They start to tell me, I could do this. I I might want to plant a church or I I want to start a business over here and I want to impact my community. I really really want to make a difference. I've got a big dream for God. And because I'm a kind of enthusiastic kind of guy, I start to get into that conversation. I say, oh, you know, you could do this and you could do that. And quite often I'm met with, oh, well, I'll just wait for God to talk to me about it. I think you don't need to wait for God to talk to you about it. Go and do something. As you start to do something, he will talk to you about it. I'm getting myself a bit wound up here. I'm really surprised when that happens. I'm like, you know, don't get me wrong. I do believe in listening to God. I don't believe in just doing things because because I think they're a good idea. But sometimes when I don't hear him clearly, I think I need to take a step. And I think God's big enough to kind of work with me on that. You know, my kids tell me all their dreams and plans. Dad, I'm going to do this. Dad, I'm going to do that. Dad, I'm going to do that. What's my response? Okay, great, wonderful, encourage you, and then wait till you actually take a step. You see, I could make their dreams and plans happen, probably most of them, but I'm not going to until I see that they're going to do something about it first. I want to see if they mean business or not. I'm right out of time. We're going to have communion and we're going to pray.